and welcome to episode two of the UC Architects podcast. I'm your host, Pat Richard, and today we're joined with Exchange Architect, John A. Cook. John's blog is johnacook.wordpress.com and Twitter, at John A. Cook. John, welcome. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, hi, yeah, I'm John Cook. Um, this is my second time up at Bat on the podcast. Um, I'm from Chicago. I uh, work mostly with Exchange and Link. Um, the UC space uh, as an independent contractor, and that's about all I have exciting about myself to say today. today. <laughs> Great. On the link side of the fence, we've got more link people this week than, uh, than we did in episode one. Uh, the first is uh, Tom Arbuthnot. Tom is a link MVP. His blog is at linkedup.com and, and on Twitter at Tom Arbuthnot. Tom, welcome. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey guys, uh, nice to be on. It's uh, yeah, Tom Arbuthnot. So I'm a Link MVP in the UK. I work for Modality Systems, so I'm doing Link pretty much all day, every day. Um, and I also um, co-host the London uh, UC User Group with Justin Morris and uh, Adam Jacobs. Awesome, awesome. We have Andrew J. Price. Andrew's uh, blog is pricelink.blogspot.co.uk and Twitter at Legendary Techie. Andrew, how are you today? I'm all right, thank you. Um, well, my name's Andrew Price. I'm an on-site support engineer for a company called Phoenix. Um, I've been doing IT nearly 10 years and only recently got into links over the last past year or so, being based on a customer site, and I'm happy to be here. Great, great. And our third uh, link architect today is Johan Veldas. Uh, hopefully I've got your name right there, uh, Johan. Uh, blog at uh, johanveldas.nl and Twitter at jveldh. Johan, welcome. Well, I'm uh, Johan Veldas. Uh, I'm working as a UC uh, consultant in the Netherlands. Uh, today I received uh, the MVP award for the fourth time for Exchange. So my primary job is mostly Exchange and particularly uh, Link. Great, great. Well, welcome. And lastly, uh, myself, uh, Pat Richard. Uh, my blog is eloworld.com and Twitter at Pat Richard. I'm a unified communications architect for CapEx Global. I live near Detroit, so nice and warm uh, these days. So welcome, everybody. And uh, first up, we've got uh, some tech news. Uh, Microsoft paid $1.25 billion for Yammer, something that most people, I think, have never heard of. It's a cloud-based enterprise social network. It looks very similar to Facebook. It's great for communicating with uh, your internal people without going out uh, over to Facebook or Twitter. Uh, so 1.25 billion. Does anybody here even use Yammer? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I can speak to. I have in the past, um, and. There was an initiative uh, for the Exchange MCM environment, you know, group to, to instead of just just the email distribution list that we use, to use Yammer. But the uptake on it has been pretty pretty small. <laughs> so that's the only other real exposure I use. And I've never worked at a company that, that deployed it, so I find it interesting on the purchase. Uh, I kind of make sense though. There's lots of you know speculation of what what that means in the big picture, but. Well, we, we use it internally, or I should say we have it internally. And uh, when I saw this purchase, I, <laughs> I went and logged on for maybe the second time since we've had it, uh, which has been about a year. And there were only two messages on there, and the first one was about Microsoft buying Yammer. 
so in a year, there was only one thing posted internally. So we have not seen really any traction at all. So, uh, Tom, you guys use it internally, correct? Yeah, we've, we've been using it for a, a couple of months. We sort of randomly chose it before the, uh, the Microsoft thing went down. Um, it tends to be used by the same people a lot, the same people that already use Twitter. Um, but yeah, we get we get a fair amount of use out of it. Um, we tend to find people use it if you actually install the desktop app, which unfortunately is an Adobe Air app, which is a bit of a shame. But um, yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> but I, 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 it was good enough that I got over that, which is uh, is a big thing for me. Um, but yeah, it's quite useful across team stuff and just seeing what's going on within the company. Um, is very much a Facebook clone for for internal. So from uh, an integration perspective, um, I've seen some uh, some speculation that it might be rolled somewhat into SharePoint, and I've seen some people say it could be rolled somewhat into Link. So what's everybody think about that? Yeah, I mean, I could see it being, you know, an add-on to either. Um, you know, we sort of touched on it last week. It's sort of the catch-22 of, you know, if you add, if you don't put that functionality natively in the stack for one product and rely on another product to take take that piece up, then you end up with having the customers having to buy multiple products. So if they added some of that stuff to, um, you know, in, into one product, it might save a company from having to buy both. So I think it could, could kind of fit in either place. Right, and and the the press release did mention. Um, SharePoint and Skype and Office 365 and things like that. So it'll be interesting to see um, uh, how it's utilized in the future. Uh, next up, we've got um, speculation, and I've been hearing about this for a couple of months now, that Microsoft may buy Nokia. And, of course, that would give them an instant into uh, cell phones. Uh, I've got the, the Lumia 900 and been pretty happy with it. But uh, do you think that would be a good move for Microsoft to buy them, and how do you think that that would help with mobility with Microsoft products? Well, I, I don't think that, yeah. Maybe, maybe it's a good step, but, yeah. I thought that Microsoft was moving away from the hardware, and now with the surface, it looks like they're right. going back with producing hardware. But if it's wise to buy Nokia or, yeah. RIM, for example, I don't know. And RIM, from from my point of view, is a very um, nice product because the security is uh, more enhanced than the other products we've got at this moment. Um, yeah, I, I would probably agree on, on on. I don't know why they wouldn't really buy both. Uh, all things being equal, especially with the stock price for both <laughs> so low, uh, I don't think it would really cost that much money to buy both. Really. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think the Surface kind of indicates that they, you know, I mean, I, well, I've been an Apple fanboy, but you know, the I think they're finally rationalizing that the only way to do this correctly long term is to own the hardware and software. Um, you know, for, for Microsoft, that's a big step in another direction. Um, and obviously, you can see, see from the announcements from the Surface, the OEMs are not particularly thrilled with the Surface announcement, and nor would they be um, with Microsoft buying Nokia. But and then that being said, how many other vendors are really making uh, uh, Windows 7 phones anyway? You know, there's still only a handful um, that are really putting effort into it. Um, and, and RIM, I would say, from the standpoint of just their, their, uh, their, their patent portfolio would be worth buying just for that. Um, but, yeah, I could see them by Nokia. I mean, it would make a lot of sense to have them have a branded device, uh, but um, how successful it would be, I don't know. 
Well, and, and you guys mentioned uh, the Surface, of course. That uh, was uh, the big announcement from Microsoft re recently. And from a mobility standpoint, Link and Exchange, um, do you think this is this is a bonus? Is this a win for Microsoft? The Surface? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a, we could probably do a podcast just on the Surface announcement and what it, what it means. I mean, um, you know, there's a lot of things about it. I mean, like I said, from, from a standpoint of, you know, I'm very much into uh, the iPad and iOS ecosystem, so um, I'm, I'm probably more interested in the RT version myself than, than the Pro version. Um, people don't know, there's, there's, you know, the RT version, Surface, I forgot the actual full but another part of part of their marketing is, uh, what's this? Someone remind me, is it Microsoft Surface for Windows RT or something? I forgot the name, uh, the full name of it. But the RT version is WinRT and it's, you know, tablet based, um, but ARM processor based. So it doesn't run x86 code. So right now there's going to be not a lot of apps for them. Uh, and the pro version is, an, you know, just basically a slate PC, um, in that form factor running Intel hardware. So, you know, I, I hope I'm wrong, but I really, um, Every generation we've had of these um, have been loud, hot, you know, uh, no battery life. And so, uh, you know, I hope uh, that's not the case. But if it is, then I think RT is going to be a much better play, personally. Yeah, I agree with you, man. That's the problem you have at the moment uh, with, with the iPads and all the other kind of stuff. Uh, it can't be managed very correctly, and that's with some companies, um, the IT department yeah, does have a lot of um, challenges with that because yeah, users will put all data on it, including uh, important data, which is, uh, yeah, let's say NDA, which can't be shared with the public world. So, yeah, when you put it on the device, the device is stolen, you, you, yeah, you've got a lot of problems. Of course, there are some um, benefits, so for example, with uh, with a change to wipe device. But yeah, I, I see some uh, some advantages when running Windows OS on on the on surface, and so it probably will um, be better to implement in our current Windows environment than the current uh, tablets, such as the iPad and the other uh, devices. Yeah, I mean that being said, I'll probably you know. Buy one immediately. <laughs> Still trying to find one of them, uh, but uh, I'm actually pretty forward to it. But I think it's a, I think it's a beautiful device. I think uh, in in watching the uh, uh, the release, um, I think they did a lot of things right. I think the uh, the the keyboard uh, integration I thought was really nice. The uh, the kickstand's kind of nice. You know, speaking as someone who travels a lot and watches movies on on airplanes, uh, the kickstand will be nice. Um, but from a mobility standpoint, do you think it's going to replace more desktops? Do you think it's going to replace more laptops? Do you think it's just going to be an add to uh, uh, to enterprise environments? Uh, you know, it's a good question. I, I, I don't know. I still think that that form factor is okay for some people to replace a laptop, but I still can't see it replacing a laptop for a lot of people. I think, and I think if anything, again, back to the Apple fanboy hat, you know, the the Air to me is my the absolute hands down best laptop I've ever had, you know, without even a, a distant second. But I think the 11-inch Air was too small, so I have a 13. Um, so, you know, 
I think that's the right size. Any smaller, I don't know. You know, it's going to be interesting to see if that really will replace. I certainly see some use cases where it will replace a laptop for for a certain segment of people, but how many people is that, you know? And is that enough to really make a mass, you know, audience for that device? It remains to be seen, but... Right, right. Um, another thing that came up in the news uh, in the past week was Ethiopia is banning all voice over IP, and that is uh, evidently so that the country can monitor traffic over PSTN without having to deal with the technology of, of uh, VoIP. So no Google Voice, no Skype, and I, I think this is a travesty. I think this is just blocking, you know, the progression of technology and certainly going to cause some issues there. You know, what do you guys think? Yeah, I think it was, it, oh, it was interesting to understand whether they were trying to do it to uh, make sure they could capture all voice or if they were trying to protect any carrier revenue in that area. They seem to say it's more of a security thing than anything else. Um, and then the question is, is it just the carrier connections, i.e. could you run a VoIP system internally like Link or, or A and other and still have carrier breakout on, on their PSTN carriers, or is it a straight VoIP ban even internally on the network? Right, right. And, and the sad part is, is that they will impose uh, prison sentences of several years to uh, people that use VoIP. So disappointing to say the least. So uh, that's all I have for tech news this week. Uh, heading into Link stuff, we wanted to uh, send out some congratulations to Tim Harrington, who's one of the Link MVPs, uh, for passing his uh, Microsoft Certified Master uh, Certification, the MCM. And I believe Tim becomes only the fourth MVP to also be an MCM for Link worldwide. So congrats go out to uh, Tim. Microsoft released Cumulative Update 6, also known as the July 2012 updates, within the last week. And uh, we want to take some time today to discuss, um, discuss the update and the features and complexities that, that go along with it. So, Tom, you said that, um, that you've been playing around with some of the, the iPad integration, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, so, yeah, we deployed um, CU6 internally on a couple of customer systems. Um, all seems to go on fine. And uh, I've had a go with the, uh, the new iPad client with the um, PowerPoint presentation sharing, and that seems to work fairly well for what it is. I think it's uh, it's important to understand that that's uploaded PowerPoints that get shared to the iPad. It's not uh, desktop sharing, which obviously we techies all understand. But, um, <laughs> you know, the the the, mere, the typical user kind of thing. Do they understand the difference between desktop sharing PowerPoint and actually uploading PowerPoint? Uh, would be my only concern. But, yeah, no, uh, it all went on smooth, and uh, with the updated iPad client, it seems to work really well. Yeah, I deployed a couple of places, too. I didn't see any real issues. The only issue I still see is um, it's not really an issue. It's just a lack of sometimes uh, reading the RTF, RTF post or whatever. <laughs> you want to say the directions. In enterprise, you know, that default, use default SQL paths. I think people should always watch out for it, because if you're not using default SQL paths, you can hose your environment if you don't. You know, if you just follow the instructions without thinking about it, what it means to you, you can run into problems. I've, I've, I've had that occur to me many times with updates, but for Link. So, and yeah, for, for people that don't know, that on an enterprise, the SQL backend, some CUs, they add different queries or something that would modify the SQL database or, you know, things of that nature. And so it's critical. It's part of the directions for, for all these CUs that a separate step needs to be to run the update against SQL. And there's, you know, some 
qualifications, whether you need to do it on the back end or the front end, depending on monitoring and co-location uh, databases. But uh, but ultimately, if you follow the instructions as written without, again, thinking about what it means to your environment, the net effect is that you can actually kind of overwrite, and, and, and it'll, what it will do is update, or it'll update the databases and move them to a, a default location, which, again, for your environment, that might not be the case, um, or uh, a good thing generally. <laughs> you could certainly knock your databases offline, you know, not a good thing. Right. What, what I've noticed is that um, even if you install the cumulative update from Windows Update, you still have to run the manual SQL step on cumulative updates that require that step, and I think that's where a lot of organizations yeah. are, are missing that. They think that just because they upgraded the servers from, from Windows Update that everything is done, and that's not been the case, and then they, oh. they end up with some other issues too. I'd be slightly worried if you're updating your link by, uh, by Windows Update, but I guess people probably do. You know? <laughs> I'm sure. I know I've done it before. <laughs> yeah. the, the important note is to read the KB article. It, yeah. does, it does show you at the bottom whether uh, a SQL update is required. It gives you the the, uh, the commandlet and syntax to use, and uh, you do need to do that. So the, the other question that that raised, of course, is uh, at what point do you do that in an enterprise where there are uh, multiple front-end servers, uh, maybe, you know, other pools such as directors and edge servers, at what point is the SQL query required to be run? So yeah, there doesn't there doesn't seem to be any clear guidance on that as far as I've seen. I mean, I can tell you that I typically patch the servers throughout and then do the, the SQL database, but um, I'm happy to be corrected if someone has a better guidance than that. There doesn't seem to be, certainly in a lab, I've run for, for days and, and weeks without doing the SQL piece and see no adverse effects. I think it potentially affects new features rather than stopping anything working. And I've done the same at my customer site. I've all of done is just put the cumulative update on, and I actually did run the SQL command until later on in the week. So I actually saw an issue. Yeah, I think I, I I typically do the SQL first to get it out of the way, because a lot of times in an enterprise environment, the SQL you know backend piece might be on a clustered environment, so there's a lot of scheduling with that. So I might do that first because that's not in my realm you know of control. Uh, but I guess it depends on the organization. Yeah, that's also what we see here in Netflix. A lot of uh, co companies have uh, DBAs which are uh, responsible for SQL servers and they want to execute patch by themselves. So that's, uh, that's also what we see here. Yeah, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. I remember I haven't seen anything in Link where not doing that step. I remember, I remember in OCS there was a, a couple of updates that if you didn't do the SQL step first, you kind of were hosed. I forget now the particulars, but it was, it was a long time ago. But, but I haven't seen that link, but, you know, there's always that fear in the back of my head that if you don't do SQL first and then try to do the patch that's dependent on it, then the patch won't apply or something. So, you know, it's always a – but I guess it hasn't really been a concern with link so much. But I can't uh, think which uh, article uh, it was, but for us, yes, there was a specific mention that you need to do it, especially in a specific order, but – Yes, just uh, mentioned by, by Tom, it's not clearly uh, what microphone should do, which order you need to do. But maybe it's interesting to find out for the next meeting, so we can just discuss it. Yeah, I, I guess between a lot of us, we none of us have got a story of it causing an explosion in any order, so that can be taken as a good thing, I guess, but it's still nice to know what the uh, 
what the supposed right order is. Yeah, I, I, have, I think it was uh, CU4 um, where I had an issue on a front-end uh, pool. Ultimately, the, what happened was the permissioning got totally overwritten on the database, so Link was coming up in limited functionality, uh, so, I mean, that was, and that was the first and only time where I saw that problem, uh, happen, but, uh, it took a while, and it took a PSS call to figure it out, and, you know, if anyone's ever come across that, the whole DB chaining and all that stuff was involved, but none of the normal fixes that are published fixed it, so, ultimately, it was, a repermissioning issue, even though, the, and the GUI was, like, one of those things where the GUI said it was permissioned right, but ultimately, it wasn't, <laughs> which, again, I supposed to know, right, but, uh, that's the only time where I've seen CU really cause any issues. That was a single one, kind of one, one-off case. Great. Well, Tom, um, uh, did you want to talk about the wildcard search feature that was in this uh, latest update? Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it's an interesting addition um, that basically up until uh, this point, CU6, the, the link phone addition devices, so the Polycom CXs, um, and the Astras and, and some of the others um, only worked if you had full certs, as you're supposed to have full certs with all the SAN names in place. Whereas with CU6 and, and the firmware updates for the phones, uh, the link phone edition that goes with that, the phones will now work with wildcard certs, um, which is uh, regards to reverse proxy and exchange, I believe. Yeah, but um, I don't know um, how you guys see, but wildcard certificates are, from security perspective, less secure than, than the other certificates. Here in the Netherlands, we've got some companies who are, yeah, not wanting to use wildcard certificates. Um, how's the, how is it with you in the UK, for example? Uh, yeah, any any enterprise customers don't tend to use them, but uh, kind of middling customers, 500 to you know, up to a thousand tend to sometimes have them on reverse proxies or exchange just because they're they're cheap and easy. Certainly, I think having them on reverse proxies, I've seen more than once. So it's quite yeah. nice now that, that they'll work with phone edition. Obviously, you've got to get your phone edition up to CU6 for it to work. So you've got to have them on the inside in the first place to upgrade to then work outside with CU6, um, which is a bit tricky. But um, if you haven't deployed them from here on forward, uh, the wildcard certs should work. Yeah, and that should yeah. be uh, 4.0.7577.4100, I believe, right? That's the, that's the uh, CU6 firmware revision number. That sounds about right to me. I don't know if hand, but I'll, uh, I'll trust you. <laughs> well, I was checking my phone. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it's a, it's a nice little addition. I'd still say any customer going in new would never say use wildcard certs. It, it tends to either be an interim step where they're desperate to get up and running and they've got to go through the cert process and, and paying the, the good money for those two or three uh, CPU cycles it costs to generate a cert. But then they would go to proper sound certs normally. Um, but it's a nice, if there's, no, if there's no technical reason why it couldn't work and there doesn't seem to be because it works in CU6, then it's a, a nice addition for sure. Yeah, I, I still believe for OA and link integration, does link still not deal with a wildcard cert? Um, that's assigned for IS on exchange for that scenario. I believe in the past that was a problem because the the name had to match what you said in in the uh, application uh, CS application in, in Link. Yeah, I've read um, blog posts from from a Dutch guy who's got some issues with uh, wildcard, wildcard certificates on this uh, Exchange UN server. 
uh, in combination with wildcard certificates, which didn't work correctly. Uh, and he removed all, all the certificates and replaced it with a single name certificate, and then it worked okay. Yes, um, to point back to the security issue, why some people might think it's a security issue is because, yeah, some some uh, companies think, yeah, when a wildcard certificate uh, is used all, all can be can use the uh, wildcard certificate and not, for example, when you use a single name certificate, you know you are 100% sure that the host is behind that certificate. So it's, yeah, uh, it can be used for DNS hijacking, etc. But that's just one thing. Yeah, I, I've noticed in the past too. I mean, I, I've actually seen some customers, especially like in a hosting scenario, where they don't even they use a wildcard um, and set all their clients the manual, which then the SRV check, you know, is bypassed. You know, I, I would not recommend that for that very reason. Uh, things like uh, DNS hijacking and man in the middle attack. I mean, that's exactly why the SRV, you know, record check is there. Of course, I'm linked now uh, with trust model data. Uh, registry key availability on the client, we can get around that, which sort of defeats the whole purpose of the SRV check in the first place, but, you know, that was done for hosting scenarios as well. But, and, as, and in a hosting, you know, environment, I might recommend, because, uh, you know, for people that don't know, you know, in a typical scenario, if you're hosting multiple SIP domains, then, then each one of those domains has to be on the certificate. And if you're a big, if you're a hoster or a company that has many, many, many branded personalities, then, uh, the number of certs that you have to be added constantly, or especially if you're adding and bringing on different customers all the time, can be a real problem. So the trust model data is, is an option for that. Uh, I, you know, for setting the manual is an option. It works, but it's not something I would typically recommend. I don't know what you guys think about that. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you, but I also don't recommend uh, wildcards. In some cases, it is cheaper um, to use wildcard certificates because you've got many hosts. But yeah. Yeah, I security is more important than the money. But yeah, yeah I, have a, I have a friend whose company has like you know eighty or something plus entities, and they're running up, getting close to the limit. I think they're past the Microsoft recommending it. It's seventy names on a sand, but they're getting close to hitting the limit that Verisign will even issue sand for that number of names. So uh, you know, you can kind of get yourself into a bad bad position there at some point. And and it's you know, I know these they might seem like a Odd, you know, very much a corner case, but there's going to be organizations out there at some point that are going to have that many, you know, branded entities, and there's really not many, you know, much guidance on what to do when you get up there, you know, a number of names. Can you please renew the certificate? <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, it's an interesting addition to uh, to the updates because yeah, we've saw, we've seen one or two customers who uh, you know, went to the to the problem. Uh, that it didn't work correctly because of the wildcard certificates. But, so for some customers, it's a benefit, and for the others, it will don't have any effect because it already works uh, by the normal way. Has anyone seen anything about the um, the update on the non-federated meeting join uh, issue? No, I was, saying, I was just looking at the. Your uh, your post and, and Justin referenced it. Justin Morris referenced it also. Uh, no, I didn't, I didn't realize that was in there. If you, yeah, if you, it'd be, I think it'd be great if you could. Yeah, just to bring everybody in up speed on that one. So there was an issue where if you were closed fed um, on your edge, but you had anonymous uh, allowed to join meetings, um, there was a certain sequence of scenarios which led to the um, 
remote party if they were also running Link, uh, not being able to join your meeting, basically, because the Edge said you were closed to them, even though you should be open just for that duration of that Link Online meeting. Um, yeah, this is supposed to fix that. Um, I haven't had a chance to test it with either of those customers yet that I hit the HQ on, so hopefully that's another one uh, ticked off, but um, I'll be testing that and probably blog about it at some point. Yeah, I think uh, this is interesting because I think I ran into this many times, um, especially with, you know, testing federated media. You try to join a conference, you know, it's sort of a, a question of, well, is something wrong in my firewall or config that I can't, you know, you know uh, media is fine with an authenticated user, but as soon as you do, you know, you do something with the federated user, it, 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 it disconnects. Um, this could very well have been the problem all along that I was having, and it wasn't anything to do with, you know, high port ranges or anything like that. Yeah. Always, it's always fun testing that, too, because unless you know for sure your federated media works and their federated media works, you know, how do you know it's not them, you know what I mean? Yeah, there's a ton, there's a ton of variables in those situations, right. particularly when you've got multiple firewalls and it's two enterprise customers. You, uh, um, We end up trying to work with friendly customers to do it, to give you a third option to test it with so you can kind of narrow the situation down. But, uh, yeah, it's, all, it's always, a, always an interesting one. Yeah, I actually had a scenario where I had a customer who, you know, they were arguing whether they should open up, uh, you know, Federation in general because of security concerns, but they had, uh, you know, you know, heavy requests and requirements from a partner um, to do so. So they were like, well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll allow Federation to just this partner, so can you give me their IP addresses of all their edge servers? And the partner happened to be HP. I'm like, you know, do you know how many edge servers they have? Because <laughs> you know? I, don't, I don't. I don't have their topology handy, so I don't know, you know, what the environment looks like. So this thing, again, again, it was one of catch too, is how can I test it unless I know it works? Uh, how can I, you know, really see what's going on? It, you know, obviously you can do some troubleshooting and stuff like that. So that's one of those definite ones that's difficult to, uh, to troubleshoot. Yeah, who, who at the remote customer, um, HP or A another, is going to tell you when they change that up as well? That's right, exactly. Right. It's probably not their highest priority. Yeah, I'm not sure if we're, we're, I think we're wrapping on link now, but... Um, just wanted to say um, congratulations to Justin Morris, who um, co-runs the, the London News Group, uh, UC User Group, with myself and Adam Jacobs. He's just been awarded his MVP for Link. Um, and also, Ari um, Potheros recently, I think it was last Monday, awarded his uh, certified masters for, for Link as well. Uh, I'm not sure if anybody else knows of any others that have joined the, uh, the MVP clan as far as Link or renewals. Yeah, great. It's great to see some of these uh, some of these guys getting their their MCMs and certainly their MVPs. And we will discuss the MVP program in an upcoming episode, including uh, having one of the MVP leads from Microsoft on. So uh, stay tuned for that. And uh, John, you had something about the uh, an iOS update. Yeah, it's kind of kind of pressing and timely. Mentioned it uh, for this this week's podcast. Um, so the 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 issue was that. Push notifications on iOS devices um, stop working uh, mysteriously. Um, and if you're in an environment that you know that's using the Link Mobile client for iOS, and you know you had a working uh, push environment, um, it stopped working altogether, uh, and it was still fine for uh, Windows Phone 7, which uses the same you know basic push cloud technology that iOS does. Um, the issue was in the previous Link uh, uh, iOS update, so. A new update was released on June 29th um, that should rectify that, and the version number is 4.2.6613. And uh, once that's supplied on the on the, the devices, that uh, the issue is gone. Excellent, excellent. Thanks for that info. 
Switching to the exchange stuff, uh, and speaking of uh, the MVP award, four people from the UC Architects group got a very pleasant email this morning. Sirkin, Steve, Paul, and Johan all were awarded their MVP awards today, with uh, Johan being the only uh, repeat award winner. So uh, congratulations to all those guys. I know I was very surprised recently to find that uh, both Steve and Paul had not received the award previously. So definitely, uh, definitely well earned, and we're uh, we're glad to have them in the group now. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's it's it, again same thing with the, you know the MCM stuff. I, I I was actually talking with Ari, you know, about stuff, but you know before he went and, and stuff like that. So it's it's uh, it's real gratifying to see guys go through it and, and get it done. Which I haven't been able to do, so especially it's gratifying for me to see at least somebody else can do it. Right? Yeah, I, I think if you, if you look at at the the more higher traffic blog and Twitter feeds for both Link and Exchange, you'll find that that most of those people are MVPs or MCMs. So uh, so good to see that group growing, especially on the Link side, which has been uh, fairly small recently. MVPs in the Netherlands were, I think, just two people for uh, MVP for Link. So, yeah, it's, it's a small group, but it's an upcoming group. Uh, we'll also see some uh, some of the guys switch from uh, from Exchange to Link. Yeah, that'll that'll probably be me. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I will probably be switching to Link as my job focus has has changed almost exclusively to Link recently. So, uh, so we'll okay. see. But yeah. um, from an exchange perspective, um, John, you were dealing with a mailbox corruption issue that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, sure. It was an interesting one that I actually hadn't seen. You know, I've seen all kinds of different things, but in 2010, I haven't seen anything quite quite like this. Um, the situation was. Uh, slowly but surely, uh, over, say, a period of a few weeks, mailbox access via Outlook Anywhere or OWA uh, and primarily on ActiveSync was sort of, you know, intermittently standing between slow and non-existent. So, you know, if you're online with Outlook Anywhere, you know, RPC sort of times out, you know, the, 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 the interface just kind of hangs. Um, and the symptom would be in OWA where you try to... Uh, Expand a folder, say, or click on a message while it renders. It would might it might say, um, you know, server timeout, which is disconcerting to say the least. And you know, you could obviously think it's bandwidth and go down that road, road that sort of thing. But um, in this case, it, it started to get more you know, worse and worse and worse. And the the biggest in, uh, the indicator was uh, ActiveSync, uh, especially on iOS, uh, but it didn't matter really the platform. You know, it was sort of this. It wasn't disconnecting. It was just perpetually pulling for mail, and it would literally just drain the battery in a matter of a couple hours if you didn't, you know, kill the mail task. So it was a really interesting scenario. And other mailboxes on the server didn't seem to have the same problem. But uh, initially, I sort of was looking along the lines that it might be, you know, IOPS related or performance related. So digging into it a little bit, you know, did some things maybe the, the, the multiple copies and, and moved some things around to different hosts uh, to see if it was in any way an IOPS problem, which it didn't seem to be. And uh, this was not even a very, you know, I wouldn't call it a very large mailbox, maybe uh, with archive 15 gig. So it wasn't, you know, anything, you know, absurd, especially on 2010. I wouldn't call that, you know, large. But so the it, the issue was, you know, basically this, this this one mailbox, it seemed, on the entire store was just slowly but surely just falling apart. So looking into it a little bit more, you know, I ran uh, a new mailbox repair request 
uh, against the against that both both the database and that mailbox. If people you know don't know about that, that sort of replaces uh, IS and Teg uh, in Exchange 2010 and uh, allows you to target. Uh, repair with certain type of switches uh, for different types of functionalities uh, to either an entire database or, or a single mailbox. Um, and that yielded some results. It seemed to get better after a, after a time, but slowly but surely it would happen again. And then at some point, the mailbox uh, didn't go offline, but it was unaccessible by any means. And again, looking into that further, and this is not something I really knew much about, so it's sort of an interesting scenario. Uh, Exchange 2010 has a mechanism where uh, if a mailbox crashes multiple times, and I, you know, I, I really am not clear on what the definition of what a mailbox crashing is, but I think uh, ultimately it's just that the mailbox disconnects or does something in the checking of the records where Exchange will then sort of disconnect the mailbox. But it does it in a way where it actually puts it into a quarantined mailbox area. On actually, it's in the registry. Um, so what happens when that what occurs when that happens is that the mailbox, you know, it sort of exists. It's not offline, but you really can't access it for any reason. Um, like I said, without being aware of this, uh, I was sort of like you know surprised to find the in the the, the, the gooid of my mailbox sitting there in this registry keys. It basically is never going to get access. Um, so ultimately, I mean, ultimately the fix for me was to do an export. Um, I, you know, disconnected the mailbox, created a dial tone mailbox so that mail could be restored, at least, you know, inbound mail could be restored, and then uh, reconnected the mailbox to a, a temporary account and uh, did an, uh, an export request. So, yeah, I mean, if anyone wants to elaborate, but that's uh, certainly a new one for me. Um, and again, it was one of those things where, like, you know, is anyone else having problems with that? You know, on this on this database, and no, it's you know, no one was everyone was fine. Uh, it just happened to be this one mailbox. And and speaking of that, um, on Thursday, I believe uh, Microsoft came out with uh, a blog post on quarantined mailboxes, which was interesting because I ran into the problem the day before, where about 35 mailboxes on one database got quarantined. Hmm. Um, and, and it and it turns out to be this same issue that they that they talk about in the blog post, and we'll certainly put a link to it on the on our site. But essentially, uh, about 35 people that were being migrated in my case, the mailboxes got quarantined, and so once the migration was complete, the users could not log into it. And uh, it took a while for me to track it down, and and this is what I found was that they were considered poison mailboxes, and they're their mailbox GUID showed up in the registry on the uh, the server that held their mailboxes, and we had to uh, delete those GUIDs in the registry and bounce the information store, and then the, the problem went away. Uh, one thing that we did notice is that uh, in an effort to not impact other users on the same database, we tried to activate uh, the next copy in the DAG, and we noticed that within a couple of minutes, the registry keys popped up on those mailbox servers as well. For the right, same, yeah, it seems to follow it. That's, that's yeah. And so, uh, yes. so we did a actually have to stop the information store and restart it. And uh, fortunately, it started fast enough that it didn't cause a, a, an activation on a different server, and it came up, and it was clean after that. But uh, it was interesting that the, the very next day, we saw this uh, this blog post from a product group about, um, you know, quarantine mailboxes on environments with um, System Center Operations Manager, a.k.a. SCOM, and, um, and that they're working on a resolution for it. And the blog post does mention a, a workaround 
for now in disabling the uh, the check from SCOM uh, to help deal with that. So yeah. it's an interesting read. Yeah, definitely. And it's one of those scenarios, too. You know, it's this mailbox has been in existence for many, many, many years. So, you know, it's been migrated from from, from, from 5, 5. I think it's one mailbox that's been migrated from 5, 5 all the way to 2010 over, over the years. So, uh, you know, who knows how much was lurking in this database, you know, at some, at some level. Even the movie should clear out most of the problems. You, know, you, know, you never know. And I, I wonder, you know, the, the constant, because the other problem with iOS was, Every time this happened, you had to like you know kill the mail task, and, and you know I wonder I've seen issues where that you know that can definitely cause some inconsistencies in the database with the mobile client just you know kind of wreaking havoc on on uh, on that folder. Yeah, unfortunately, so, in my case, uh, one of the users was a CXO, so uh, of course, right? No, of course it is, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we also we also, uh, we also had the issue with one customer and it was the Phil's uh, root mailbox. So everybody was screaming, and yeah, it's it's an interesting issue. But when you know how the how the feature works, it, yeah, it's a nice feature, but not in all scenarios. Yeah, like I said, I had uh, really not really covered that, you know, uh, in the past, and I was sort of surprised that that, that this existed. I mean, yeah, and, it, and what it does is, it's you know, it's it's very cool that that uh, it you know it's sort of self-healing, and, and it will definitely you know kick these out, but there's not much of an indicator. There's no, you know, if you didn't know what to look for, you wouldn't know that it that uh, that it had been happening. And symptoms are not uh, necessarily, hey, your mailbox has been quarantined, you know, and the OWA page doesn't show that. It just kind of hangs, you know. Right. And yeah, if, you're, if, if you're not logged in, it won't let you log in at all. You're, you're essentially locked out of your own mailbox, and it doesn't right. tell you that, you know, like you said, you're not, you're not locked out, you're not quarantined, it just doesn't let you do it. And be like that, all the, all the background processes such as the uh, mailbox assistant and content indexing doesn't also work for mailboxes who are placing quarantine. So it's, uh, it has to do with some flag I read in the documentation and when the admin flag is set to one, you can exit with special accounts, but yeah, not with uh, normal user accounts or uh, accounts uh, which run in, uh, in the background change. Um, it takes six hours before your mailbox is released from quarantine and when you don't do it manually, so it's pretty long. Oh, so you say your mailbox could be released from quarantine uh, on a process? It, it actually gets released after after six hours. Uh, if, it's, if it's considered a poison mailbox, which is it's listed under the quarantine mailboxes right. key in the registry, then that usually gets refreshed um, every six hours. I did not know that. Yeah. See, I'm learning something every day. <laughs> Another thing that, that I've noticed in the the only other time that I've ever seen poison mailboxes was if you can, you stop all your mobile devices from trying to connect and um, and see if the problem goes away. You know, obviously that's if you if you see the problem popping up for the same mailbox over and over. Um, that sometimes that can be tied to to you know errant uh, mobile devices trying to connect. Right. Yeah, that's kind of was my theory too. This has seemed to be definitely correlated to to a bunch of problems I was having with ActiveSync, and all of a sudden it started getting worse and worse and worse around that time frame. I also noticed that uh, I had a situation, so I was the mailbox was trying to load, so I, you know I got the splash screen in Noah, logged in, the page not is you know is trying to load mail, but you're sort of just seeing you know the the splash screen still, the login screen, splash screen, and while that's while that was running. 
I restarted the store, deleted the register key, and restarted the store, but the store would not stop until I killed that OWA session. Uh, I literally watched it. You know, you could see the store process not stopping, and then as soon as I killed OWA, the, you know, the memory drained out, and it, and it restarted. And I was like, okay, so that one OWA session was just keeping the store hung uh, in that case. So I don't know if that's indicative of the, how bad the mailbox estate was, or I found that interesting, uh, though. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and then if you don't perform that step, it will won't, uh, it will put it back in quarantine almost immediately, from what I've seen. But it's a cool feature, uh, yeah. If you know it, if you don't know, exactly, it, yeah. Well. <laughs> so hopefully, people will learn, you know, know more about it after listening to this. And speaking of uh, uh, of some good tips, I wanted to bring up um, a script that came out or that was mentioned again. Uh, this past week, um, our own uh, Paul Cunningham has a, a great script called Get Mailbox Report that will generate a report at the mailbox level, the server level, the database level, everything, and give you some, some very good information about the size of various mailboxes throughout your environment. And we will certainly put a, a link to, uh, to Paul's great script on our, uh, our website. Yeah, I've used it in the past. It's actually really, really good. Tom, you had uh, a tip about uh, some resources from Microsoft. Yeah, so um, I just wanted to um, point out that the um, TechEd videos for both North America and Europe are now on Channel 9. Um, Microsoft did an awesome job of putting pretty much all the content up there, um, the slide decks, all the videos in, in various formats. And, uh, yeah, even if you, you think you know what's going on with all the Windows 8 and Server 2012 stuff, um, there's some good stuff there to watch. And, and on the, the link and exchange side specifically, again, even if you sort of know your stuff, there's, there's some 400 level sessions that um, have really good content on there. Yeah. So maybe just check in and, and look at the, uh, the 400s because they get some good guys to talk there and it's definitely uh, worth a look. Yeah, we, we, we talked about this last week somewhat too. Yeah, there was some really, really, really good discussions. I'm kind of bummed that I didn't go this year, but at least we have the content you know available to us. And, and one tip I have along those lines too is if I, I'm running on a Mac, but uh, there's probably you know there's, I'm sure there's products like this for, for all platforms. I use a product that actually will download all. So if you click the you know start playing the the session, it'll actually download the file uh, while it's playing. So you can actually kind of just build a library of it instead of having to you know watch each one and then not have a offline copy. It'll go down. It'll go out and just as you as you're clicking on each one of them to play, it'll download the the full MP4. Yeah, there's a, there's a stack of PowerShell scripts that will go out and grab. I saw that. As well. <laughs> I, I was I was I was just gonna yeah I was just gonna say that um, Matt Johnson, who runs the Southeast Michigan PowerShell user groups, uh, came out with one as well, and I went and downloaded all the Exchange and, and Link uh, videos, and then uh, used Handbrake to uh, dump them all into iTunes so I can watch them on my iPad. Uh, but uh, definitely some quality content. Uh, from people at TechEd. So who who on the on the call here today went to TechEd North America? Anybody? And crickets. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, I don't think anybody's listening. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I actually uh, chose to attend uh, Mac in the fall over TechEd, uh, and we'll get to that in a, in, a, in a second. But did anybody go to TechEd in um, in Europe? No, I didn't, didn't get to go over this year, unfortunately. I think Adam, uh, Adam Gent, one of the UK uh, Link MVPs, went, went over and did some sessions. Oh, great, great. And who's going to Mac? We know from uh, the first episode that it was pretty much everybody but Steve. Uh, I know I'll be there. Who else is going? Yeah, I'll be there. 
I might, I might play the jet, but I, <laughs> I'm paid anyway. I will try to be there. But it depends if the boss uh, gives permission for it. Now, has anybody attended uh, previous MEC conferences? No, I never have. Okay, I, I went in, uh, I think the last one I went to was in 1999. It was in Atlanta. And I'll tell you, if, if you have to hit up the boss for, um, for some conferences throughout the year, this is one that you don't want to miss. If you've ever gone to, um, to TechEd, this is essentially a, a similar level production by Microsoft, but it's entirely based around Exchange. And so you don't have all the other product groups vying for your time and, and trying to split your schedule for sessions. Um, this is a fabulous conference uh, to attend. You get um, 400 level, if not higher, uh, sessions, uh, mainly from people within the, the product group themselves. So you'll see uh, Greg Taylor, you'll see Ross Smith, you'll see, you know, all the who's who um, from the product group giving some, some great technical information, as well as the ability to interact with them face-to-face uh, -face during some of the um, the whiteboarding sessions and the, the birds of a feather session. So I cannot recommend enough uh, going to Mac. It's definitely worth it. And the uh, you can find out more information at uh, mechisback.com, and we'll, we'll throw that on our, our site as well. In fact, there's, there's a link to it at the bottom of the Episode 1 uh, page. And there is a rumor that uh, there may be an extra day of content being added uh, on, on Thursday of that week, MEC is in September in Orlando, and so we're still waiting to find out if, if that indeed is true and who that would apply to. But uh, uh, definitely, definitely worth uh, being down there, and the social networking aspect of it uh, is fabulous. Yeah, it's, if you look at it, if, if anyone who goes to the site, uh, you'll see that they have an elite meeting to be determined and uh, on the last day, uh, or the day after the last day, and um, as well as a user group seminar, but there's no details or pricing. And uh, I would really like it if they would tell us what it is <laughs> and, what, and how much it costs so I could, you know, book the save on the state of that day. I don't know why they haven't put it up yet, but hopefully they'll, put, they'll do that sooner than later. But, yeah, I mean, just to echo, I, yeah, this is definitely going to be the, if you are in the exchange in any way, shape, and form, um, I think this is the place to be, uh, especially this year, because the the E15 stuff, you know, will likely mostly be announced uh, and really get gone into at this conference. And as we talked about last week, uh, our last last episode, there really is nothing on E15 at TechEd, which is actually kind of surprising. But um, I think this is going to be the venue for a lot of it to come out. So definitely not something I would want to I would want to miss. Yeah, I, I I think it's going to be very very heavy on on content for the next version of Exchange, uh, E15 or or whatever you want to call it. I think that there's uh, there's a lot for the the social networking aspect of it too. I mean, you're you're essentially in this convention center with nothing but Exchange people, and so if you've got some burning issue that you're trying to figure out or some feature that you're trying to um, to implement in uh, Exchange 2010, you're definitely going to find somebody there that, that can help you out, as well as getting uh, the most 
in-depth, publicly available knowledge uh, about the next version of Exchange. And there, there is some speculation around uh, release timeframes for the next version of Exchange and maybe, you know, seeing, seeing that around the same time frame. It's all speculation at this point, but I think, I think people will be pleasantly surprised with what's uh, made publicly available. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, I, I, I think I said earlier too that the MCM, uh, MCM community for exchange is definitely going to be a, there's going to be a large push there. So there's going to be a lot of MCMs uh, in attendance. So you know, good resources to talk about the program or any problems you might have. Um, I expect to see a lot of show show force. <laughs> so yeah, and and the one I guess disappointment is that it's entirely based around exchange. There's really not anything planned uh, around link. Uh, unfortunately, it would be nice to see it as uh, more of an Interact conference for those of you that have gone to Interact in, in, in previous years. Um, I, I think that would have been a wise choice to kind of bring that in together. But like I said, if you've ever gone to MEC before, it's definitely the conference to go to. So looking, looking forward to uh, uh, putting faces to uh, names and, uh, and uh, meeting up with some of the, the people deeply involved. So. Yeah, and if you've never been to a session with Greg Taylor uh, speaking, you know, you're in for a treat. <laughs> That's something you want to miss. And speaking of, uh, of upcoming events and, um, and the like, uh, Tom, you uh, wanted to maybe bring up the, uh, the user group in London. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, for, I'm not sure who, who we've got in the audience on, on the UK, but um, the UC London user group, Microsoft uh, London UC user group, that myself, uh, Justin Morris, and Adam Jacobs run, is having an event on the 26th of July, um, a Thursday night, uh, and that's at the Microsoft um, offices in London, uh, Victoria. Um, no agenda as yet, um, but it's at the Microsoft office and uh, on the 26th. So if you want to get signed up, just uh, hit my blog or, or Google it, and uh, I'm sure you'll find it. Great, great. So we mentioned um, Paul Cunningham's um, exchange report. I did want to bring up um, our Matt Landis link tip of the day. Uh, Matt Landis is a link MVP at uh, windowspbx.blogspot.com and Twitter at Matthew Landis. And Matt's tip today is uh, about making your Outlook signature phone numbers and link addresses clickable. So we got this idea by seeing uh, Tommy Clark do it, and Tommy is one of the other link M MVPs. Essentially, in your Outlook signature, if you make any phone number a clickable link by using uh, tel, T-E-L, and a colon, and your E-164 formatted phone number, uh, it makes that a clickable link that people can click on and then have link automatically dial that, as well as your SIP address uh, by uh, prepending a SIP and a colon, and then your SIP address makes it a clickable link that people can instantly create a uh, an IM session with you. So we'll have a link to that uh, that tip on our uh, our article or our uh, page for the blog. And uh, so thanks, Matt, for that excellent tip. And, Johan, you had a user group that you wanted to mention, correct? Yeah, that's correct. It's uh, the uh, network group Netherlands. It's, uh, it's an old Novell uh, user group, but it's being transformed to a network user group. And at the end of uh, October, we are planning to do an event about the uh, exchange uh, uh, of Office 365. 
um, um, besides me, some other guys are speaking uh, on the event. Um, Dave will be. Um, I think Michel Roy was also a part of the exchange, uh, the UCR member group, uh, will also attend it. And Jaap Mercedes, he presented on, uh, on the tech app about a uh, low balancing. And uh, one of the MCM uh, MCM guys for Exchange Valentin, who's now also a Microsoft certified architect, and will also pre- present on that event. So it will be a pretty interesting event for uh, for a lot of users, I think. Great, great info. And then um, uh, Sirkan Veraglu had also uh, wanted to pass along uh, the Turkish uh, community group at mshowto.org uh, for some great information as well. So thanks for those tips, guys. And that about wraps it up for this week. I'd like to thank my co-host John Cook, Tom Arbuthnot, Andrew Price, Johan Valdas. I would also like to thank um, Paul Van Geldrop, who did our intro and outro music that you hear every week. So thanks, Paul. Paul's on Twitter at PVGeldrop. I'd like to thank Michael Van Horenbeek, our editor for this week, and Dave Stork, our producer. And I'd like to send a a quick shout-out to Tim Corder, who helped in recommending some audio equipment for recording this week. So thanks, Tim. And we want to remind you that the UC Architects are online. Visit our website at www.theucarchitects.com. We're on Twitter at theucarchitects. See our Facebook page at facebook.com slash theucarchitects. And we do have a group on LinkedIn. Our podcast is available in the iTunes Store, the Zoom Marketplace, and in your favorite RSS client like Outlook. See our website for links to everything. So again, thanks to everybody, and we'll see you again in two weeks.